Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest this week is Mark Fitzpatrick, associate fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a former deputy assistant secretary of state for nonproliferation, and one of the top experts on Iran and its nuclear program. Mark and I will be talking about the Iran nuclear deal, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and whether negotiators may be close to an agreement, and if so, what it means for the United States, Iran, and the region. My conversation with Mark Fitzpatrick about Iran and the latest on the Iran nuclear deal begins now. Mark, welcome back to On the Middle East. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Happy to be here. Let's start with the news. Iran has submitted its response to the EU final paper based on negotiations in Vienna last week. And the final sticking point, or stickiest sticking point, seems to be the IAEA investigation into previous nuclear activities in a number of Iran nuclear sites. Mark, briefly walk us through how we got where we are, and run down where you think the deal may be stuck or unstuck with regard to the investigation into Iran's previous nuclear activities. Yeah, Andrew, that's a good way of, uh, of framing it, because actually this issue of the IEA investigation uh, goes to the heart of the matter, um, the heart of why uh, this uh, Iran nuclear uh, program has become such an issue. And it's because... Uh, Iran had been conducting nuclear weapons-related uh, development work back uh, earlier in this uh, uh, century, in 2004 and, uh, uh, and, uh, and thereabouts. Uh, and uh, some residue from that activity has been recently discovered by the IEA, some uranium particles. When you discover uranium particles uh, that were never reported before, it's an indication of some nuclear work. Uh, that was never uh, reported, and that would have uh, been a violation of Iran's uh, safeguards agreement. So the IEA has a, um, uh, an imp uh, imperative to get to the bottom of this. That's, that's their mission. Uh, and uh, Iran's answers to the IEA these past uh, three years have been evasive, uh, inconclusive, and in the IEA's words, um, not credible. So uh, Iran doesn't want to uh, provide credible answers because it would point to um, work on nuclear weapons development, which they claim they never did. And, you know, they cite a fatwa uh, that uh, Iran will never have, you know, that nuclear weapons are, are forbidden. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they don't be caught with their pants down, basically. And that's why uh, this issue is so um, such a sticking point for them. But Mark, why doesn't Iran just give the answers and say, uh, we may have done research in the past and that's behind us. And since that time, we have nuclear inspections and, and safeguards and we've made this commitment to uh, proceed down a different path. Or are they hiding something to con with the purpose of continuing to hide? Well, something? that's that's a good, you know, I don't know the answer exactly to that question. I, I, I can surmise why they won't admit the past wrongdoings uh, and my belief has been that uh, it's just part of the psychology of, of uh, mankind that having started a lie 
some years ago and having repeated that lie so many times that um, that the lie becomes entrenched and to um, uh, admit uh, to it now would mean the unraveling of that lie and uh, pointing the finger at, uh, at your supreme leader. And it's just uh, uh, not something that Iran can bring itself to do. But you pointed to another possibility is that uh, Iran may be continuing uh, this weapons development work, and and uh, and that's a big reason not to uh, to reveal anything. Or even if they're not um, continuing it, I think um, at the very least they want to be able to continue it in the future. They, Iran has a nuclear hedging strategy to be able to produce nuclear weapons. Uh, if a, a rainy day comes and they, they need they feel that they need to do it. In the meantime, they keep this work on the shelf. They had the records, the records got purloined by, by Israel, but Iran probably had copies of it. Uh, and, uh, and so they could, they could pick it up and, and resume it uh, at a time uh, that they deem necessary. Iran points to a precedent uh, back in 2015 uh, before the implementation of the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as the Iran nuclear deal is known, there was also an IAEA investigation into Iran's past nuclear activities, and that was handled separately. And I, and I think, I, as I understand the Iranian position, there's a parallel here. You wrote about it in your article for us last week at El Monitor, which is Iran wants to separate the case of the past activities with proceeding with renewal of the Iranian nuclear nuclear deal, just like in 2015 when they separated the past investigation with the implementation of the deal itself when it was launched. Explain yeah, this, that the, parallel if it works. This this, uh, this parallel is uh, is eerie, uh, you know, in a way that uh, <clears throat> just as in 2014 when the IEA had been uh, investigating uh, what were very clear signs of, of past weapons development work. And uh, as a condition for implementing the JCPOA, uh, Iran uh, required that, um, that the IEA file be closed. And the way that was done was that um, the requirement in, in, in the deal that was struck in 2015 was that uh, Iran would address the IEA's questions, but addressing questions is not the same as satisfactorily answering them. There were 12 uh, main issues, questions, and by my count, uh, Iran maybe answered them, one and a half of them satisfactorily, leaving a lot of un unanswered questions, but they were, you know, basically swept under the rug because uh, the determination was made that it was more important to uh, have a, a, a clear understanding of Iran's current and future activity to be able to prevent uh, nuclear weapons related work. More important to, to, to worry about the past, uh, the, the present and the future than to worry about the past. And in any case, intelligence was very clear about Iran's past work, so they didn't need uh, Iran to admit to it. And there's a similar uh, situation today. Iran is pulling at different threads, newly developed threads, these threads of the uranium particles that were discovered in 2019. And, uh, and uh, Iran, again, wants that investigation closed before it will implement restoration of the JCPOA. Now, there's one difference uh, between now and 2015, which I pointed out in my article for Al Monitor, is that 
in in 2015, the issues were all about past work. And so it was is easier to uh, say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll close the file on the past work. Whereas today, uh, the, the issue, the, the main issue for the IEA is the whereabouts of the uranium in question, the current whereabouts of the uranium in question. And that goes to the very core of the IEA's uh, mission to ensure that all nuclear material in the country is, um, is uh, for peaceful uses. So the IEA is, is interested in how that nuclear material uh, got where it was when it was discovered. That's, that's a past issue, but they're more interested, I think, in the disposition uh, today. And that's why these two issues are different. And I believe my understanding is that um, maybe in a side deal or an understanding uh, that um, if, if Iran comes clean about where the uranium is today, they won't necessarily have to satisfy everybody about what happened in the past. Uh, now, Iran has not signaled that they're ready to do that, but that will be the way out for them. If they, if they want to compromise, if they want to steal, that's a pretty generous, generous way for them to uh, address this. Our two other issues have been on the table. One is the role of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the, the IRGC, which has been sanctioned by the United States, most of what we're picking up regarding the negotiation seems to be that, that uh, there's either a workaround or a resolution on that matter. And there's also the issue of guarantees. Uh, Iran feels uh, singed when, or feels singed because President Trump had pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal in, in 2018 uh, and uh, left Iran, even though it would continue to be a, a signatory to the deal, uh, did not get the benefits because of U.S. secondary sanctions. So how do you see or do you see either of those issues continuing to be a problem, the, the guarantees or the IRGC matter? Yeah, Andrew, on the face of it, it looks like both of those issues have um, somehow been put aside. My understanding uh, is that the main issue that had been um, blocking a final uh, agreement in the Vienna talks was this issue of the IAEA investigation and that the other two issues of the terrorism designation for the uh, IRGC and the uh, guarantees about not pulling out again uh, somehow uh, were dealt with. Now, <laughs> the, the history of the negotiations with Iran might lead one to be um, uh, cautious about saying it's been dealt with you know, sometimes the way that um, Iran or, to be fair, some other countries conduct negotiations is to set something aside for a while, but then to come back to it when other issues have, have been addressed. So that might be what happens. But probably the way that these two issues have been uh, seemingly dealt with that. Okay, so first of all, on the uh, IRGC designation, uh, Iran um, seems to have accepted that there's just no way that uh, President uh, Biden uh, can uh, remove IRGC from the terrorism, uh, foreign terrorist organization uh, designation. And that is particularly the case after the discovery of, of uh, the plot of, against uh, the plot to assassinate uh, former National Security Advisor John Bolton and former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and former Iran envoy um, Brian Hook and others. 
there's no way President Biden can can give a whitewash uh, to the IRGC. But I guess the way that this is being dealt with is that there's um, an implicit agreement or maybe an explicit agreement between Iran and the United States to deal with that separately uh, later. And um, and then with the issue of the guarantees that um, Iran, that the United States will not again uh, pull out, the way it seems to be being framed in uh, in, in Iran is that um, Iran will receive some kind of um, assurance that if the United States were to pull out again, that Iran would um, get some kind of a compensation for that. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I mean, what kind of compensation could, could Biden offer now that would... Um, be relevant uh, and um, and binding on any future president. I, I don't see it, but you know maybe there's some kind of a of a way that letters uh, could be written to um, to tell uh, any uh, international firms that if they do business with Iran uh, today, if the deal is is resumed, that any business they conduct would not um, uh, fall under any uh, future sa sanctions. That's a kind of a letter of guarantee that um, that could be offered to businesses, and it's a it's a in a way a kind of a standard practice, and it's an idea that's been out there before. So if that's the resolution of the guarantees issue, I think it's a an elegant resolution. Should Iran be concerned that if there is a Republican president, that that president might renege on the nuclear deal? Oh, absolutely. Iran uh, should be concerned about that. I mean, it's it's uh, etched in stone, uh, practically. It's not just you know written on the wall, but it's etched in stone. I mean, the uh, Republican um, uh, Party uh, senators um, have made very clear their uh, total opposition to the deal, and uh, and several of them have said they would pull out. I mean, there was a letter from from Senator Tom Cotton um, uh, some time ago um, uh, predicting that. So. I think it's pretty clear that um, that a future Republican uh, president, if one is elected, would uh, pull out of the deal. And and so Iran does have some reason to want some kind of guarantees. But as I see it, um, you know, more important for Iran is the immediate benefits it gets from uh, restoration of the deal now. Benefits that it has been foregoing this past year as they've been stalling and stalling. Every month that there's not a restoration of the deal, Iran loses upwards of $4 billion in oil sales. Uh, so um, if, they, if they resume a deal, and for the next two and a half years at least of the current administration, they would be getting those benefits and all the other deals that might be consummated. And um, the release of the $100 billion or so um, dollars worth of frozen uh, Iranian uh, revenues from past oil sales that's all to the good. So they get immediate upfront benefits and uh, the future, we don't know what will happen. Mark, how close is Iran to a nuclear weapon? What does the administration mean when it says that Iran is potentially weeks away from having the fissile material that is the highly enriched uranium necessary for production of a nuclear weapon? And can that be reversed if there's an agreement on the JCPOA. Yeah, right. So nobody knows exactly how uh, close Iran is to um, being able to build a nuclear weapon. What we know is what we can see in terms of the production so far of uranium enrichment, the stockpile of the enriched uranium, and the efficiency 
with which Iran can produce more enriched uranium. So you take those two factors together, the stockpile and the efficiency, and you can make mathematical calculations of how long it would take Iran to produce 25 kilograms of weapons-grade highly enriched uranium. That's uh, sufficient for one uh, nuclear weapon. And when you do that calculation, you get a couple weeks based on um, Iran's uh, current status. And that's what the um, administration has been saying. And a couple weeks is is very, you know, it's too close uh, for comfort. Under the JCPOA, that so-called breakout period of when Iran could produce uh, weapons worth of fissile material was 12 months or more. Because of Iran's uh, introduction, uh, development and introduction of advanced uh, centrifuges, it's not the knowledge that it has uh, acquired about how to build and run those centrifuges. It will be impossible to um, re-extend the breakout period to that 12-month um, uh, minimum. Now, 12 months is an arbitrary figure. You know, it's a, it's a good benchmark, but it doesn't have a, um, a, a real technical basis. There's nothing magical about it. Uh, I think that um, probably the best that could be done today would be to get about a six-month breakout period. Might not even be that, but six months would be uh, certainly adequate for, first of all, detection of any Iranian breakout. The IEA uh, inspectors would be able to see that pretty quickly. So detection, uh, some time for amelioration, and then third, um, uh, some means of stopping it. By some means, you know, military means of stopping it. And you could do that within uh, six months. It's very hard to do that within the current two weeks. And so that's why it's absolutely imperative to extend this breakout period. What about the prospects for what's called a, a sneak-out option with or without the JCPOA? Is there a way, if you have an Iran nuclear deal, uh, that Iran would be able to develop a nuclear weapon outside of the purview of international inspections and safeguards? Well, one shouldn't overpromise uh, the ability of the IEA or intelligence agencies to completely uh, foreclose uh, Iran's option for sneak out. Um, the IEA inspectors cannot go anywhere in Iran. Uh, Iran's not a defeated country, so they don't have that right. My assumption is that intelligence agencies would detect uh, something uh, uh, going on and that the IEA um, would um, then be able to, uh, to learn more about it. So a sneak out uh, is within the realm of the possibility, but that possibility is reduced uh, to the extent that the inspection procedures and rights of the I, of the JCPOA are restored. You know, it was the most intrusive uh, verification uh, monitoring regime ever negotiated. And uh, it's not it's not 100% perfect, nothing is, but it's, uh, it's a heck of a lot better than the, the situation we have right now when Iran has stopped uh, cooperating on all of the additional verification um, uh, measures in the JCPOA. In your article for Alt Monitor, you imply that an Iran nuclear deal could be good for regional security. How do you see the region benefiting uh, from a deal between Iran and the world powers about its nuclear program? Yeah, to me, this is this is really rather obvious. I mean, if Iran is um, precluded from developing a nuclear weapon because of the limits on enrichment and most importantly because of these uh, additional 
uh, monitoring rights of the IAEA, then the region is obviously uh, better off um, in terms of, uh, of its security uh, and its ability then to um, develop peacefully. If Iran um, were to develop a, a nuclear weapon or to be so close to developing it that uh, one would have to assume a worst case scenario, uh, then you have uh, two factors that um, impinge very negatively on regional security. One is that in a circumstance that Iran is uh, seen to be uh, proceeding to developing a nuclear weapon, I firmly believe that Israel and the United States would take action, military action if needed to stop it. And this military action would start off with um, maybe pinpoint strikes against uh, nuclear facilities, but it could quickly escalate and you could have another regional war, this time involving the United States and Israel. And it, would be, it could be a very uh, bloody war. That's obviously uh, bad for regional security. The, the second um, way that um, regional security is negatively impacted if there's not a deal is that um, if there's not a deal and Iran continues to get closer and closer to being able to develop a nuclear weapon, then um, other uh, countries in the region will feel that they have an imperative to keep pace with Iran. I'm talking obviously about Saudi Arabia, but there could be others, Egypt, Turkey, uh, for example. All of uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has made very clear that if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, it will too. And I think uh, the Saudis uh, would say that even if uh, Iran does not absolutely uh, have yet a nuclear weapon, that they have to get the whereabouts, um, the, the means of being able to keep pace. So. Uh, that's why I think the JCPOA is vital for regional security. Mark, final question. Republicans are asking that the Biden administration refuse to grant a visa to Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi to participate in the UN General Assembly meetings next month. And they're citing plots uh, to kill John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. You had mentioned this earlier. And this all comes in the context of the attack on Salman Rushdie this past week where the uh, assailant was inspired, it seems, by the 1989 fatwa by the late Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran. What do you think? Should the U.S., given these recent events, grant Raisi a visa when his agents have been involved in plots to kill our officials? There's two ways of, uh, of answering that question. One is um, the legal obligations of the United States as a host to the United Nations. As the host, uh, the United States is obliged to uh, uh, allow um, entry to New York uh, City for the purposes of attending UN meetings to any uh, world uh, representatives. And uh, obviously, uh, Raisi should be allowed under that legal obligation and his, um, you know, um, travel uh, rights could be restricted just to attending uh, the UN and going back and forth between there and the UN mission and, and his hotel. Uh, such a pro, uh, such a restrictions have previously been placed on Iranian representatives. Uh, but, uh, but you've noted, um, you know, very important uh, uh, factors here of Iran having uh, designated former US officials for assassination. Iran makes no bones about this. This is not uh, uh, any secret. Um, the two you mentioned, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, others who have uh, had a, a 
target painted on their back by Iran include Brian Hook, who, who led the uh, Iran team at the State Department. Um, that's reprehensible uh, to, uh, to target uh, citizens like that, citizens who are not even in power anymore. Uh, so there, I think, would be a, a, certainly a moral reason and a, and a strong political reason for the United States to, uh, to draw the line and say we cannot allow the representative of a country who has, uh, which has um, directed these plots against our citizens. And I think there would be um, a pretty strong political support in the United States for such a restriction. And it wouldn't be the first time that the United States has, um, has prevented um, certain world um, reprehensible um, leaders of reprehensible countries from, from attending the UN. But as I say, if on a legal basis, um, they shouldn't. Mark, I, I said that was the last question, but I'm going to ask you one more. Uh, given what you know and what we've discussed today about uh, the Iran nuclear deal and where it stands, do you see an agreement being signed? And if so, when? And if so, are you optimistic uh, that it could put U.S.-Iran relations, the region, and uh, non-proliferation on a better on a better course? I'm glad you answered uh, left uh, left off with that uh, answer or that question. Uh, Andrew, because it points to something positive we can end this uh, discussion on. Up until uh, last week, I was quite negative that the negotiations in Vienna would succeed in restoring the JCPOA. Iran had been dragging its feet for so many months. The uh, deal that had been on the table since March just was not, uh, didn't seem to be palatable to Iran's leaders, but uh, they seem to have decided that it is palatable. They responded to the EU's uh, last uh, final text uh, responded uh, yesterday. We don't know the exact response, but according to reports, it wasn't uh, negative. They uh, had some questions and some uh, quibbles, but I don't, uh, so far what I'm hearing is that those quibbles aren't, uh, aren't um, uh, going to block uh, a final agreement. So I think uh, right now, if I had to bet, I would say, yes, there will be an agreement to restore the JCPOA. And I think it will happen um, um, probably, it'll probably it'll happen on this weekend and, and destroy my, my weekend because I have to write about it then. But uh, I think in the near future, we will have restoration of the JCPOA. Mark, thank you for joining us again on On the Middle East to talk about a Iran. Always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Good talking with you. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. 
Thanks to our guests today, Mark Fitzpatrick, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabel Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our own monitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. Gilles' guest this month is the incredible Moroccan novelist Zineb Makure, who discusses her debut novel, La Poule et son Koumen. And on Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week talks with Prime Minister Lapid's international spokesperson, Karen Hajoff. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where I will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at almonitor.com.